during this sermon series, uh, a very difficult sermon series, Twisted Love, Family Secrets, Lies, and Heartaches, as we've dealt with a very difficult topic of bullying and controlling uh, behavior, of domestic violence and abuse, sexual abuse and, and sexual assault, and surviving that. And this morning, thinking together about the, the heartache that is compounded when we try to cover up or ignore those things, what we've been trying to say in a hundred different ways is you're not alone. Whatever you've gone through or peop, someone you love has gone through, you don't have to be alone. There are uh, God's resources and the resources of loving Christian community and uh, helping resources, caring resources in our community and state. On the uh, Welcome Center table in the lobby is this sheet that is a resource sheet of both reading and uh, TED Talks and websites, uh, local resources, state resources, community resources. We hope you'll take time to look at that. And then remember that all three of these sermons in this series, this is the third and final, uh, will be, all of the sermons will be online, or two of them already are. You may listen. Uh, the manuscripts will be posted as well. And if you find it helpful to listen or to share with someone else, we hope that you will do that. But we want you to know you're not alone. We're not alone. We're all struggling with brokenness and with pain from imperfect human families. And we want to uh, remind each other that we are never, ever alone. Now, before I read the scripture this morning, I'd like to lead us in a time of prayer. If you could bow your heads with me for just a few moments. And we'll be in God's presence in some silence and then some praise and petition. Our mighty God, we praise you for these glorious promises that we are not alone, that you are with us, you are guiding and sustaining and lifting and helping. Today we think about your providence, what it means that you provide for us and that you go before us anticipating our needs and that you're faithful and never fail us. We see that most completely in your son, Jesus Christ, as he gave his life and showed your love to us. And we pray today that our church might have boldness in our witness because of the great love of, uh, that you've poured out at Calvary's cross and made continually present through your Holy Spirit. We pray for our upcoming vacation Bible camp and sports camps. We pray for our summer mission trips and for our own ongoing witness in this community and the world that your Holy Spirit will embolden us to see our relationships as an opportunity to share your unique love, your redeeming love. And on this weekend, we are indeed thankful for those who've paid the price with their lives to guarantee this freedom of worship. We invite you, God, to lead us faithfully in discipleship and to uh, fill our hearts with your love in such a way that we will live sacrificially. We ask for insight into difficult family issues and societal issues related to abuse and violence and cover-up. Give us tools to deal with seething anger, that that anger might be dissipated, that we might live 
in love and freedom and not be enslaved. Guide our thoughts and our words. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Now I want to read with you a scripture from 2 Samuel, the 13th chapter. We're actually going to take up right where we left off last week. Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. And uh, we talked about all of the dynamics or a lot of the dynamics surrounding that. And we take that story up uh, in verse 20 of 2 Samuel 13. And I'll be reading that aloud. I invite you to stand if you're able to do so as I read aloud from God's word the remainder of that chapter. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar remained a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he became very angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had raped his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Your servant has sheep shearers. Will the king and his servants please go with your servant? But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, or else we will be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. The king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom made a feast like a king's feast. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Watch when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons rose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, the report came to David that Absalom had killed all the king's sons and not one of them was left. The king rose, tore his garments and lay on the ground and all his servants who were standing tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimea, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons. Amnon alone is dead. This has been determined by Absalom from the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Now therefore do not let my lord the king take it to heart. For if all the king's sons were dead, as if all the king's sons were dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. When the young man who kept watch looked up, he saw many people coming from Horonayim, road by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, see the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. As soon as he had finished speaking, the king's sons arrived and raised their voices and wept. And the king and all his servants also wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. David mourned for his son day after day. Absalom, having fled to Geshur, stayed there three years, and the heart of the king went out, yearning for Absalom, for he was now consoled over the death of Amnon.
the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, King David's family was a mess, and everything was coming unraveled. It was coming unraveled because of David's bullying and his controlling behavior. We talked about that two weeks ago. His adultery with Bathsheba, believing that women were property and he could treat them any way he wanted with no consequences. His son, firstborn son Amnon saw that and thought, hey, that must be the way life works. I can use other people and then toss them aside and women are, are my property. And so he raped Tamar. And when word came to the king, King David did nothing. Did nothing. Oh, he was angry. But he had so indulged his firstborn son Amnon that he couldn't bring himself to discipline him. And he didn't uh, reach out redemptively to his daughter Tamar who'd been raped. He didn't care for her needs that we know anything about. There was, there was nothing. And, and one of the Bible commentaries uh, asked this question, what happened to the courageous David? What happened to the decisive King David? What happened to David, the one who was not afraid to take on Goliath, the giant? What happened to uh, the very uh, wily and creative and bold David who could outsmart all of the enemy nations and consolidate such a strong political and military empire? What happened to that David? He just checked out. He just checked out. Absalom, Tamar's full brother, found out about the rape. And he, he told her, don't do anything. Don't let, don't let this get to you in a very coarse kind of way. And, and yet he was seething inside. For two years, he let that anger and hatred toward his half-brother Amnon. He let that, that anger seethe and bubble and... Two years, that hatred just growing and growing and growing. Finally, he found his opportunity. There was a sheep shearing party that was going to take place. He made sure that he had uh, Amnon killed. And then as soon as he did that, as if to defy his father and to sort of thumb his nose at his dad, King David, he fled to Geshur, which is modern-day Golan Heights. And there he waited. And scripture says that in a very real way that day, David lost two sons. He lost the one murdered, Amnon, and he lost the murderer, Absalom. Scripture says in verse 37, David mourned for his son day after day. And I think probably we could add he mourned for both sons he'd lost them both. Tony Cartledge in a great commentary on 2 Samuel has said, the mourning in Jerusalem was not only for the death of Amnon, but for a certain loss of trust and innocence. Could we say that in America today with all of the domestic and sexual violence, that it's not just the mourning of the death of of so many people and so many relationships, but the mourning for uh, a loss of trust and a loss of innocence among our collective society and particularly among our children. Nothing was ever the same in Israel again. Nothing was ever the same in Israel again. 
And, of course, that wasn't the end because Absalom continued to be fueled by this hatred and this anger. And instead of dealing with it redemptively and getting this secret out, this pain in his heart out, he just channeled it through political and military things. Soon he led a revolt, a rebellion against his own father, creating a civil war. Thousands died, and Absalom himself died in battle. And that famous passage from chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, when David finds out that his son Absalom has been killed in battle, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And if you're into literature, you may know that there's a famous novel written by the southern novelist William Faulkner entitled Absalom, Absalom. It's not a recounting of this story, but it's a more modern rendition of all of these tragic themes. And if you're into classical music, Eric Whitaker has uh, written a beautiful setting to this tragedy when David finds out about Absalom, uh, and it's entitled When David Heard... And it's haunting. Its melodies are, are heavy and haunting. Actually, our son Joel uh, was in William Jewell College Choir, and they sang it when they were on tour in England and Scotland several years ago. Uh, and, it, and you can Google it. It's just, it's just amazing in its power. But here's the, here's the sum total of, of this truth. If there is any nation in the world today who should be able to identify with the tragic themes in this story, it is the United States of America. Sexual abuse, sexual assault, bullying, good old boy systems that keep it silent and suppressed. What a tragedy to try to put a lid on these horrendous events instead of getting them out into daylight. Letting all that anger personally and collectively seethe. Now here's a truth we need to know. Domestic violence never happens to simply an individual. It happens to an entire family. Happens to a community. Oh, don't get me wrong. The victim herself, himself, are the are the primary victims, but there are a lot of victims. Rape, abuse, sexual violence is never anybody's private business. It's always the community concern and the nation's concern and the world's concern and the church's concern because we live in webs of relationships. We never live in isolation. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. His private business? No. Because his family saw that and his sons acted out. Amnon's rape of Tamar, his private business, her private business, no. Because that that secret keeping and that inability to deal with that pain redemptively just festers and grows. And pretty soon an entire nation is at war. And more death and more violence and more cycles of pain and family failure. 
uh, let's suppose, men, that you buy an expensive suit at Dillard's because you have this special event coming up. And you bring the suit home and you uh, hang it on a rack and, and uh, you see one little tiny thread that, that looks uh, like it's just sort of a, a ravelin that's there and you pull on it and you keep pulling and the suit just begins to crumple and pretty soon there's just a bunch of clothing material all crumpled on the floor. The suit is gone. It all started with the pulling of one thread. That's what happened in this story. That's what happened in this narrative. And when there is sexual abuse and sexual assault, violence to one another, we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room. The problem never goes away on its own. And just channeling all that into silence, seething anger doesn't solve anything, doesn't fix anybody, doesn't help. I heard a pastor say one time that relationships in these Old Testament stories are so powerful because we see ourselves in them, we see relationships refused, he said, abused, and confused. And didn't we see all that in these stories here? Relationships refused, relationships abused, relationships confused. The tragedy and the pain that results. Now, about this point, somebody's getting a little hopeless. Because perhaps you grew up in a family system where there was mistreatment of others, the devaluing of other human beings, whether it was sexual assault, abuse, whether it was bullying and controlling. And you're thinking, you know, what I see in Scripture is just the continual cycle of playing out a poisoned family tree that leaves me no choice as if if there's a sort of a determinism and, and I'm bound to repeat those things that I've inherited but that's not true. That's where the the gospel comes in. The power of God's grace says that we can always break those cycles. The power of Jesus, the risen one, says that those cycles can always be interrupted, that we are not foreordained to repeat those cycles. We have a choice. Life can be different. I think sometimes we need a broader understanding of being born again from John chapter 3. We in Baptist circles have privatized that to make it all about private piety, that we're born again so that we can go to heaven. But in a larger sense, being born again means that God can repot the the family tree in new soil. That there can be reparenting. That we are not doomed to repeat cycles of family violence, that God can miraculously provide new roots, and when there are new roots, there can be new fruits. And being born again is the opportunity for God to plant us in new family so that we can make choices through the power of the risen Christ for life to be different, and we can interrupt cycles of violence and cycles of pain, and we can interrupt those family secrets and those lies and those heartaches. Many of us here this morning are familiar with that 
verse from Ephesians 4, verse 26, that says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger is not a sin. It's an honest emotional response. If we don't acknowledge that, we're denying our humanity. It's what we do with the anger that becomes sin. The Apostle Paul said, don't let that sun, don't let the sun go down on that wrath, on that anger. Don't tamp it down. Don't mash it. Don't sit there and seethe. Deal with it. Keep short accounts. Get it out of your system. Don't let it fester and poison. Theologian Paul Knitter has talked about physical violence in our nation and world being a product of verbal violence, language that is hateful and violent. But he said even before physical violence and verbal violence, there is an attitudinal violence. There's a violence in our attitudes that feeds violent words, which in turn feeds violent behavior physically. And I think that's helpful for us to understand that there has to be an acknowledgement of attitudinal violence and a repenting of attitudinal violence. And Nitter goes on to say that when there's violence in our hearts, it interrupts the flow of compassion. And I like that imagery, that, that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and in the resurrection, there's this endless supply of compassion that flows down through us to other people. But when we hate, when we seethe and harbor anger, when we don't deal in daylight with our pain, then it's like that's, that supply of compassion is choked off. And it's down to a trickle and then it's down to nothing. We, we choke off compassion through our violence. And Jesus Christ calls us to something better. Last month, there was a story in the news about police in downtown Berlin, Germany, that discovered, uh, actually a construction site discovered, a World War II bomb that had not exploded. Now, another one was found recently this week in Dresden. But the one that I read about first was uh, in Berlin. Construction site discovered this unexploded bomb from over 70 years ago. And they called in the police and they cordoned off uh, the entire region in the the inner district of Berlin. An 1,100-pound unexploded bomb. And they dealt with it very delicately. Seventy years old, and it still had the power to detonate. I'm wondering what family unexploded bombs might be lurking in our lives. From 70 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, two weeks ago. See, those unexploded bombs can just detonate so quickly. And sometimes it only takes a flash, just 
something unrelated that triggers. But Jesus Christ calls us to transparency, calls us to daylight, to openness, to deal with our pain. And I believe the gospel is calling us this morning in the name of Jesus to be free from all that unexploded ordinance, all that unexploded bomb stuff, calling us to be free from all that would enslave us.